1: Let's go places. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?
2: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. I'm Molly.
1: Today, Molly, you and I are going to discuss the long-distance relationship because as, you know, most people would tell you, long distance relationships are just a recipe for failure. I Wouldn't hear that say? often. Yeah. Wouldn't you say? I mean, I've never come across an article saying 10 reasons why long distance relationships are the most fulfilling, <laughs> satisfying experiences of your life that will ultimately lead to a forever union between two
2: wonderful individuals. Kristen just sits over the cubicle wall for me, and sometimes that's too far. I know. Yeah, this is between us <laughs> right now. It's like
1: a gulf. This whole table is so big. Um Yeah, I would say that most of the articles that you see, most of the conversations, the anecdotes that you hear about long-distance relationships, I'm not going to go into personal details, but, you know, from friends of mine, let's say, uh... Long distance relationships—I know of not a single one that has worked out.
2: I'm, I was—I was thinking right there about whether I knew any. I actually do know a few that have worked out. Yeah, yeah, okay. And you know that's sort of why this was one of the topics that we wanted to discuss because even though you do see all these articles about. Your relationship is doomed. People still do it.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. Even though we know that they are really hard to pull off, a ton of people still engage in long distance relationships. Like for some reason, I don't know, do you think there's some kind of allure to having a long distance relationship? There's something incredibly romantic on the outset of like, you know, having that, that long distance love.
2: I can see that. Yeah. I mean, I like my own space, Mm -hmm. so I don't need someone who's there all the time. That's Mm -hmm. a little too much for me. Mm hmm little personal fact about me.
1: And and I, I, Molly's <laughs> always telling me to, to skedaddle.
2: No, I'm not. Just when you invade my personal space. <laughs> Just when I show up at your apartment and announce. Anyway. Um, but I do think there are probably people who are more suited to it than others. And I think that's what we're going to find is a very key uh, aspect to a successful long-term relationship. And that is the two people who have decided to do it. And that's where things can get tricky because anyone can think, oh, you know, we're the two that are going to make it. Our love is strong enough to make it. But what actually has to go on between these, those two people to make a long-distance relationship successful? Obviously, when
1: you cannot see someone day to day, you don't have that kind of daily interaction, and in a lot of ways, your personal lives are exist in separate spheres. You know, you don't, you aren't hanging out with the same friends, you're not going to the same places, etc. Um, so. So, yeah, trust is a huge issue, and it comes up on the 10 reasons why long-distance relationships just don't work from the ever-positive (laughs) HowStuffWorks.com. It is number seven on the list. In fact, it is lack of trust because writer Tom Sheaf says that a healthy monogamous relationship requires of its participants a moral compass, ethical grounding, commitment, and devotion, and long-distance relationships jeopardize all of that, he argues— what say you, Molly?
2: Well, first, I just want to point out that this article really ruffled a lot of feathers around here <laughs> because of that very negative title that you just read off. Um, but as for trust, I do think that he makes a point here that just because you're in close proximity, you don't have that same guarantee either. Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, you know, even if you are in the same city and you do hang out a fair amount of time, there's so many times when you're not together all the time. So you're always going to have to be. Yeah. So you're always going to have some trust issues. The question is whether distance makes the trust issues so much more present, which I guess it does. But um, sometimes it's not even that the person's given you a reason to doubt them. It's just your perceived uh, idea of what they're giving to doubt you.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think, Molly, you're, you're kind of getting at this aspect of someone's negative
2: affectivity, well, that's if you a, will. Yes, let's talk about negative affectivity, because one of the um, scholarly papers we found about this issue it's from the Journal of Social Psychology. It's called, In Times of Uncertainty, Predicting the Survival of Long-Distance Relationships. And, um, you know, there have been a lot of studies about whether the number of miles between a person makes, between the two people make a difference, whether, um, you know, how long they dated or didn't date before they were long-distance makes a, makes a difference. And these two researchers, Jessica J. Cameron and Michael Ross, posit that it's none of those factors that really makes a difference. It's something called negative affectivity. And... Negative affectivity is sort of what it sounds like. It's if you're pessimistic about the future, if you have a tendency to experience a lot of negative emotions such as anxiety and depression, if you have low self-esteem. And those are, you know, obviously personal factors that are going to make that uh, maintenance of trust over a long distance all the harder because if you're the kind of person who doesn't believe that things are going to turn out well, then how are you going to muster that trust in someone to say, you know, just because they're 3,000 miles away, they're not going to cheat or, you know, they're still thinking about me or their new friends are no one special that I need to worry about. But wouldn't you say, too, and I think that the researchers
1: point this out, that, you know, someone who might be more prone towards negative, um, effective states uh is going to maybe encounter relationship problems n- depending uh, you know no matter
2: how far their partner is that's true i think that's very true um but they did find when they were looking at the they were comparing relationships in the same city and long distance relationships and they did find out that a high level of negative affectivity could predict a breakup in a long distance relationship but only in the men which I found surprising because when you think of um, the people who tend to go crazier, I think, in a long distance relationship, I hate to say it, but it's usually the women. Mm-hmm. It's usually the women who just feel so insecure about what's going on across the country or across the state or however long the distance is that they can't, uh, they just can't handle it. But th- these researchers found it's actually the men, that high NA in women was really not associated with any sort of long distance fallout. Mm-hmm. So I think that proves again that, you know, you've got to take into account the person you're in a relationship with before you decide whether to take a long distance. If you are with someone who is very needy and anxious, I mean, you know, but in a nice way because you're still with them, you know, how are they going to manage that distance? Because I think even the most well-adjusted people, when you add in that distance, can get very anxious, sure. needy. That first separation is very hard. Well, and to me, the findings
1: of this study were kind of a no-brainer. You know, if we're talking about, you know, negative affectivity predicting relationship success in general, it makes total sense. And also, the researchers predicted that relational security would be associated with greater relational stability in both long-distance and same-city relationships. Essentially, a solid relationship is a solid relationship. You know, it might be a little more complicated by distance, but, um Their findings confirm that. And also it also backs up previous research that found that, for instance, couples who were more optimistic about the future of their relationship were less likely to break up. Um, you know, people who just had more natural trust in their, in their partners were more likely to find dating success, if you will. And I guess it's also, you know, what do we term success? Um, you know, is it, I guess just long-term enjoyment of someone else's company. (laughs) <laughs> but you don't have their company, then. That's the point. But you can have their company, Molly. Let's talk about that. Yeah, you can't, especially in this day and age of technology, okay, and the, the the age of the Jetsons realized. <laughs> the kids and their computers these days. The iPods and
2: things. Uh, there are so many ways to keep in touch. Yeah, I mean, you can, especially with webcams. And when I was looking at a lot of sites, uh, that were talking about how to maintain long-distance relationships. So many people said that was the glue in a relationship, that they could turn the webcam on and they would talk, and it was so nice to see the person's face, the person's body language. But even then, uh, they would do something else. They would watch TV, or they would do the dishes, or they would, you know, be picking their nose. They wouldn't be talking to each other, was the point I'm trying to make. Uh, but just having the webcam on and knowing that, you know, if you wanted to, you could shout out, oh, hey, that was a funny line blah, 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 that just, it really did make a long distance relationship a lot easier. So I guess that's the one big advice I pulled out of this was get a webcam. Get a webcam.
1: <laughs> yeah, because again, going back to the House of Works article on why relationship, long distance relationships are doomed to fail, uh, you know, they point out the cost of keeping in touch in that, you know, you have to spend money to get on a plane or get in your car or what have you, you have to take time off work to make, you know, all of this happen. And it just ends up being a financial burden. But I mean, Skype doesn't cost anything. Yeah. You know, the investment of a webcam and maybe, you know, watch your, watch your cell phone minutes. But I think though, when, uh, when we're talking about communication with long distance relationships, because we do have so many options from say sending a text message to actually going and flying and seeing someone face to face, um, I don't know. I think that that could, uh, that could impact it a lot. To me, if you are communicating solely or largely through just texting, you know what I'm saying? It doesn't yeah. seem like it would predict very much, um, future stability. You know, I think you have to think outside the box, which is what that, that website that you were talking about, um, really emphasized to foster as much as much face-to-face type of communication as you can, even if it is just through a computer portal.
2: Well, I think that that, again, we're coming back to where it really depends on the person. And I think that what I gather is the most important thing when you're talking about long-distance communication is just what works for the two of you. And being very clear about that, you know, uh, if you want, you know, one long phone call a day versus 10, you know, check-in texts a day, Mm -hmm. I do think that, you know, you brought up texting. I do think that for some people... Text throughout the day is the way to go. Whereas for some people, they need more, you know, a long email. Some people need more of that phone time. Some people, you know, need three hours of webcam time. So I think that that's part of what you have to work out in negotiating that long distance relationship. And I think to me, this, all this research brought to mind,
1: um, a study that I read about, um, I don't know, it was probably a year ago now. And I, and I wish I had the, the reference in front of me, but it, it basically found that If couples, long-term couples, want to keep the spice alive in a relationship, it was critical for them to uh, enjoy novel experiences together, to not just get stuck in a routine of, you know, especially for, you know, people who are married with kids saying, okay, Thursday's date night and that's when we go to the Olive Garden and you're going to order the pasta primavera. You know, you actually like go out and say, no, we're going to go have sushi on Tuesday and mm-hmm. it's going to be crazy. Uh, and I think that that's something that uh, could be important for maintaining long distance relationships as well. Even if you might not have the luxury of being able to go out and go skydiving together, say, maybe you could somehow change things up just with your mode of communication. For instance, like instead of sending an email, why don't you sit down and write a letter? Oh.
2: Who doesn't love getting a letter? I love getting letters.
1: I mean, I'm just playing relationship therapist right now, but and also, you know, kind of speaking from some personal experience, but let's put some some numbers behind all of this talk, Molly, because, you know, I love statistics because uh, we're talking about long distance relationships. We've said that it affects a lot of
2: people, but just how many people are we talking about? And, you know, I think probably one of my favorite fun facts that will come out of the research of this podcast is that there is a a thing called the Center for the Study of Long-Distance Relationships. Yes.
1: Was, Someone got really
2: frustrated with their long-distance relationship. <laughs> I was not aware that such a body of, of uh, research and data existed. So these numbers come from them. Um, it's very hard, of, obviously, for reasons you can probably understand, to get an exact number. Um, but according to that center, an estimated 2.9% of us marriages are considered long distance, uh, with one in 10 marriages reported to have included a period of long distance of within the first three years. And, you know, there have been a lot of trend pieces lately about how the number of commuter marriages are on the rise because in these tough economic times, maybe someone has to take a job, you know, that's two hours away Mm -hmm. and the spouse can't sell the house, um, and obviously, the military is always affected by long distance. So um, I was surprised to see how many marriages were. But then when you just talk about people dating, they're estimating that 4.5 million college couples in the U.S. were in long distance relationships. Yeah, it happens a lot in college, which makes
1: sense, you know, especially with the whole like high school sweetheart type of thing. And then you go to different colleges.
2: But, you know, I will say my one piece of advice, um, to kids in college is just don't spend all your time talking to the high school person. Right. You've got to invest in a new situation to make it work. Exactly. Invest in yourself.
1: (laughs) Um, But here to me, this is most compelling thing that came out of the center for the study of long distance relationships, which I think should be a word of total encouragement to you folks out there who are engaged in a long distance relationship right now because it seems the, the the numbers indicate that there's a breaking point with long distance relationship where it's like if you can make it for this set period of time then you're good much better than people who live in the same city exactly so here's the thing all right so they broke down the uh the percentage of breakups of proximal relationships aka you're dating you know dating the dude down the street versus long distance relationships now in the first 6 months, proximal relationships fare much better than long distance relationships. We've got 35% of proximal relationships breaking up and 42% of long distance relationships. But then we hit the 8 month mark and the tables have turned. That and 42% drops all the way down to 11. Just 11% of breakups during the first 8 months. And then that goes down even further to only 8% during the first year for long distance relationships and get this Molly a quarter of all proximal relationships. So while, you know, you might be jealous, say, of your roommate whose boyfriend is over all the time, you know, and they're just in love for the first six months while you're having to like sneak away and, and Skype your your dude in Singapore or wherever, you know, you're going to get the last laugh <laughs> one year later when she's crying alone in your bedroom. And you're like, sorry, I'm, I've am i got to Skype my boyfriend in Singapore.
2: Well, th- I think that, yes, it was very encouraging to see that if you can make it a certain amount of time, then you, you do have better odds against you. But that does speak to how when you are getting started in a proximal relationship, someone who's in the same city, you have the time to take it slow. Mm-hmm. And see if things are going to work out or not work out. And maybe you'll give them six months and then you're like, Oh, this isn't working out. Whereas I do think long distance relationships have that pressure very quickly to be serious. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure that is why it's much harder in those first few months because perhaps, you know, you think it's going to go great. You move apart. It doesn't. Um, maybe then a remedy to slowing all this, this dating business down, Molly, is to start just
1: referring to it as proximal relationship building. (laughs) You know, maybe instead of saying, hey, do you want to go on a date? Maybe you say, would you like to go on a prospective proximal relationship building excursion? You try that
2: out, Kristen. Let me know how it works for you. (laughs) That's not one of my Cosmo tips. (laughs)
0: Um, Oh,
2: okay. Um, but I do think that that level of making the commitment early on is an important factor in the long distance relationship success, uh, because going back to this How Stuff Works article about why they don't work, uh, Tom Sheeve talks about uh, people who use the long distance relationship as the way to um, get in a sneaky breakup. Oh. It's the kind of people who want to avoid conflict. It's so, like Tom Sheeves at <laughs>
1: HouseNumberEx.com went through a weird long distance relationship.
2: <laughs> or he just doesn't like conflict because he says that, you know, if you don't like conflict and you want to avoid, you know, hurting someone with a breakup, You just move away, Just
1: move away, just change locations and eventually they
2: will get the point. You may try and do long distance relationship, but your calls just start dwindling. But, you know, you better you better watch out. You can't you can't
1: wait too long because according to the Center for the Study of Long Distance Relationships, you got about 14 months before someone's going to move closer to someone else. Yeah, that's the average amount of time that couples can expect to live apart before they can move
2: closer together. And you were talking earlier, Kristen, about how you think it's very important that couples have that light at the end of the tunnel, be it 14 months, five months, a year, whatever it is, you kind of have to have an end date in sight because otherwise it's, I don't know, but see, that's not a, I don't think that's a pressure point we put on proximal relationships. Like in 14 months, we're going to be really serious. Right. So I do think that's a key difference between Uh, PRs and LDRs.
1: Sure, but I I would argue, though, that with proximal relationships, while we might not have a timeline attached to them, well, I mean, some people might, but generally speaking, we don't have a timeline attached to how the relationship would proceed. But there are certain milestones that you do cross for instance, I'm just talking about simple things such as meeting the other person's friends, hanging out with them, kind of becoming integrated into their, their habits and, you know, vice versa, like having the, the new person meet, meet your persons. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe meeting the parents, whatever, you know, those little like relationship milestones that you have. Um, when you, you know, when you start, when you start dating someone that might not take place as easily with a long distance between you. Which gets,
2: which gets again to that issue of trust. If you have been in a proximal relationship and I love how now we are using proximal relationship in casual conversation, Chris, I'm making it happen.
1: I'm no longer dating. I'm proximal relationship building.
2: Um, but if you're used to that sort of natural evolution of a relationship that happens, uh, in a proximal relationship, it can be really jolting when you can't get that same sort of satisfaction in a long distance relationship. And this it's going to be a vicious cycle, but to go back to the beginning, that's where you can start to have trust issues because you can't meet their friends. You can't, you know, if you're the type of, you know, girl who is really anxious that your uh, significant other has another really, you know, attractive girl in the circle of friends and you don't know about it, then you can just start to let things build in your head and it, and it just gets messy. Mm-hmm. But let's leave the messy part for a minute and let's talk about, I think probably the most fun aspect of a long distance relationship, the visit. The visit. And these can be really exciting because it's sort of like being a tourist, uh, either in your own city or in a city you might know fairly well, or you may be meeting up, you know, in the middle somewhere. And uh, these are kind of mixed blessings. One, it's great because you finally get to see that person. The time together can be even more special because you rarely see each other. Um, you're probably more likely to be doing touristy things, spending time together. And it's it'll be, I think, a, a large quantity of high quality time. But I said it was a mixed blessing because I do think that there is that um, honeymoon period that happens in a new re- in a in those visits. And mm-hmm. if at the end of those 14 months when you're living together again, I think it can be really hard to transition from having a relationship built on visits mm-hmm. to having the proximal relationship again. Because then you've got all that nitty gritty stuff of like who takes out the trash. Yeah. Day to day interaction. Who does the dishes. Like that day to day interaction when you don't have it on a regular basis can be a really hard transition back.
1: Yeah. Cause that's when, you know, weird pet peeves pop up. And I'm not just trying to, you know, sound like some nitpicky woman here. I mean, guys, you know what, you know what we're talking about. You know, everyone has those little daily quirks. Mm-hmm. For instance, you know, I don't really care to be spoken to before 10 o'clock in the morning. True. Period. (laughs) Um, but also, uh, it can be hard as well on, uh, not only on your psychological environment, Molly, but also on the actual Earth's environment. As Slate pointed out in a very Slate kind of way, just to take a, a quick little side trip here to this Slate article that we found disparaging long distance relationship because of the negative environmental impact that they have. The, uh, the author points out that because of the impact of you know, uh, flying and ground transportation, a carbon offset company would pin their romantic travels with the equivalent of 35 metric tons of carbon dioxide every year. Egad.
2: They were saying that a woman would uh, be more environmentally friendly to give up a long-distance relationship than she would like giving up all meat because of all the processing involved in meat. The processing involved in her travels was greater than that.
1: Do which I say.
2: (laughs) Have a proximal relationship with your hamburger.
1: Yeah. Enjoy that. Enjoy
2: that hamburger. And there's also just the cost of all those flights, all those train trips, all that gas.
1: But like we said, Molly, there are ways to, there are ways to get around the, uh, you know, the cost to lower the cost. Thanks to technology, you can still keep in touch for,
2: for pennies a day. (laughs) So we've gone through some pros and cons. I don't think we've, you know, decided that one is better than the other. Although I'm curious to see how, uh, your proximal relationship will going, will go once you start calling it that. Well, that's the thing though. I mean, I think that the
1: research that we've found has said that, you know, long distance relationship success depends on, hey, surprise, the two people involved and how committed and optimistic they are about the future.
2: And I'll end on one more positive note uh, from the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships. And they were talking about how, you know, the happiest couples spend a lot of time together. But were they happy because they spent time together or were they or did the time together they spent make them happy? Mm -hmm. And the journal or the article drew the conclusion that the amount of time a couple spends together does not in and of itself play a central role in relationship maintenance. So... It's more about quality and not about quantity. Mm -hmm. If you can't see someone every day, but you still have really great time when you see them or when you're chatting online with them via your webcam, you know, it can work. It can
1: work. And I want our listeners to prove to us that it can work by emailing us their stories of long distance relationships. Because I feel like so many people I know have attempted some form of long distance relationship, even if it was just temporary. Um, and everyone has has a different take on it because every relationship is a little bit different. So please share your stories with us uh, because I'm I'm curious to know what people how people have made it work and also the deal breakers in long-distance relationships. So send me and Molly an email if you have a chance. It's momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And Molly, let's uh, read
2: a couple emails right about now. All right. I'm going to read one from Vicki, and this is about the Why Do Men Propose episode. She writes, When I first met my husband, I was content getting in and out of relationships in less than two weeks. I was in no hurry to settle down. I am very independent and wasn't looking for a Prince Charming to take me away. As a matter of fact, my husband was warned by a mutual friend that I would never settle down. So when things got serious, I think we were both surprised. After dating for six months, I knew he would never propose before uh, because when we were first dating, I constantly said I would never get married. So one night I had him kidnapped from work by his boss who dropped him off at a hotel, gave him a room key and drove away. I was waiting in the room with some candles lit, Chinese food from his favorite place and a simple gold men's ring and I asked him to marry me. He said yes and now I've been married for 16 years on July 31st and we have four kids. Very nice.
1: Nice little proposal story. All right. Well, I've got one here from Crystal and this is in response to our podcast about women and bartending. Uh, She said, I bartended for five years at my university pub during my undergrad and part of my master's and had no idea that there had been such a struggle for me to reach that position. During those years, I made quite a few observations. I noticed that most females are absolutely horrific tippers. A good portion of them wouldn't even come to the bar with cash in their pockets. They would just expect some guy to buy their drinks. It was shameless, and I quite often told the girls that. Somehow people forget that the better you treat your bartender... With large tips and a simple please and thank you, the faster you'll get served. I've flat out not served a few ladies who were yelling at me and had tipped exactly zero from their previous drink. Why should I when overall the guys would always be nicer and tip better? It shames me to admit that about my own sex, but I've rarely noticed any different. The nicest female patrons were always women who also worked in the service industry. So, take it from a woman who knows women tip your bartenders and be nice <laughs> and don't just expect men to buy your drinks because you might go home sober <laughs> alright so send us your emails it's momstuff at howstuffworks.com and check us out on Twitter, like us on Facebook if you don't mind and as always you can follow our blog it is Stuff Mom Never Told You and you can find it at howstuffworks.com